Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Dr. Amo Sohal, co-founder and principal dentist at Broadway Dental Boutique, a Crawley-based provider of dental services. Amo, hello. Hi, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, now, normally, I like to get straight on to the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, uh, we should start there. Um, how has this affected your operations? Well, in terms of us in particular, we know that every sector has really been affected by it. But in terms of me in particular, we we are a dental clinic, so a dental practice. So when we found out we had to close, obviously our main concern was how are we going to be taking care of our, of, of our patients and obviously our staff. So that was our first instinct of how do we manage everything when we're totally shut down pretty much on on that day or on that week so it's just been a lot of time getting systems in place preparation in place obviously with that whole furlough things the government are giving us this was great great news for us in terms that we could keep keep staff on and then in terms of the workload that's where we obviously had to shift it to myself and also my business partner so me and him have pretty much been trying to deal with all of our patients throughout the lockdown. But by that, we have actually implemented quite quite a few innovative um, systems in place, which now that we're coming out of lockdown, they're still actually clients and patients are really liking them. And as a business, we can see what the demand is, and we will actually keep these systems um, going forward in the future. Mainly what I mean by that is things like virtual consultations and virtual appointments where patients and our schedules can line up very nicely and we're still adhering to social listening guidelines and new guidelines that were set up by government. So mm. that will be the major thing that we have changed and implemented within our business. And it is really, really showing a lot of um, demand now. Um, daily, we're getting multiple, multiple inquiries that do actually want virtual consultations or virtual appointments with us. Well, let's talk a bit about that reopening uh, progression. Um, of course, it, it is a very intimate business, dentistry. Uh, mm-hmm. You are uh, in a position where you are very close to your patients and uh, yeah. your patients are exposed quite, uh, quite, a, uh, quite a lot, having to have their mouth wide open um, uh, during the uh, procedures. Um, yeah. What are we looking at in terms of... Um, prophylactic measures to prevent the spread of uh, this infection uh, when uh, you get back to practicing? So when it comes to infection control, as a dental practice, we are already governed by strict strict guidelines to Mm -hmm. prevent infection within clinic. We deal with viruses and bacteria from all different patients, things of that nature. So we have to think of any patient that comes in that they are suspected with some sort of virus bacteria. So we follow these clinical guidelines anyway. Now, the big difference that we've had with coronavirus is being a new, being, being, being a new virus, evidence is still coming out. So we do understand the guidelines that have been given to us keep on changing or they keep on updating, but that has to come from the evidence that is still being dealt with now. 
the main issue with coronavirus is being obviously an airborne an airborne virus is that we would have to make sure that we allow enough time in the surgery, for example, after the treatment has been done mm-hmm. to allow the virus particles to settle and then clean everything around. That's the current guidance that we have. Now, there are obviously a lot more technology that is being introduced, such as bogging systems, UV lights, things of that nature that can help kill the virus in clinic. These are, again, still need some more evidence-based. But in terms of us dealing with the virus in clinic, it's more introducing social distancing. So it's more of a one-in, one-out policy now. So it's only appointment only um, that you'll be allowed into the clinic. And everything else is done via triage on the phone mm-hmm. or, for instance, via video consultation. So we really know exactly what the patient needs or what the patient wants. And then when we do bring them into surgery, that everything is already prepared and everything is ready to go. And the whole team and staff know exactly what needs to be done. So the amount of contact that the patient will actually have in the, in the practice itself is very, very minimal. We try and get all the preliminaries done virtually over mm-hmm. the phone or via video chat and then when they do actually come in they know what they're coming in for they know what the cost is going to be we try and even take payments beforehand so they don't have to wait in reception or use any payment terminals or cash there we we do have waiting rooms but we're not obviously implementing them right now because it is a one in one out service so whenever the surgery is ready for the patient the patient will obviously simply just wait in the car and wait outside essentially allow them in once their appointment is ready to come straight in. Dentist nurses are already ready, are already in PPE. That's been the that's been the main main issue here is making sure we've got the PPE correct, make sure everyone knows the exact protocol of the PPE and then of course communicating our message to our patients that although we may have new guidelines, we may have new system in place, underneath that mask, underneath all that all that PPE we are the same smiling team that was always here. Mm-hmm. And it's more communication that we felt with them. And we haven't had too much patient pushback at all. They understand the concerns. Everyone has managed this limited diary. So as long as we get the communication out to patients, they have been very accommodating. From the business point of view, that was a little more difficult because we're seeing less patients. However, we still have full staff and we still have full hours. So that's where it's been a little bit more tricky how we can go around that issue but that's again where these virtual appointments or virtual consultations that we have implemented in essence it has pretty much opened up another surgery for us so whether you would normally have a patient in surgery or a consultation or advice we can now do that preliminary appointment actually at home and then that surgery would now be free to any other patient for example in urgent need of an emergency or dental health of course well, it's fantastic to hear that there's such an, uh, a full thought out plan uh, to deal with this when you're able to take people back. Uh, we should yeah. move on. Um, each sure. week uh, on the podcast, we have a topical in focus question. This week, it relates to the recent forced uh, removal of the Edward Colson statue in Bristol. Um, mm-hmm. Our question on this is Is it ever appropriate to remove a historical statue? Now, this is something that. Obviously, if a massive decision like this is to be made, this is why democracy, I guess, is in place. So we have to put arguments forward, pros and cons, and then we will have 
committee members or council members to make that decision on people's behalf. Mm-hmm. Obviously, what's been happening now is there is a discrepancy from the public to, for example, the police force or, for example, the politicians. It is these transitions that I can see are wavering, which is obviously causing big disrupt to the entire public. Now, when we get such an uproar like this, if voices aren't heard, I do understand that people have to take a stand and they have to make a statement to get their voices heard. So, for example, the removing of the statues, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, it is still something that has happened to make people's voices heard and to allow this issue to really be brought out to the public and to really be discussed, especially with the men, women who are actually in charge of parliament, who are actually write some policies, they will, it would have so much more weight to them if they know people are coming together and they are doing actions, for example, of removing statues or things of that nature. It just puts more issue, more weight on the actual issue at hand. Mm-hmm. So whatever the resolution is going to be going forward, it gets done efficiently, it gets done more quickly, and it gets everyone on board. So in terms of taking it down, there's rights and wrongs on both sides of it. Is more of a freedom of speech issue that I, I, I believe. And if the issue, if there's good founding on it, which is what's going on right now, then it can be removed. If it was on the right way, it's something that needs to be investigated, needs to be discussed. But then I don't know what exactly was happening within the council because I'm hearing there was a lot of inquiries in previous years to remove that statue anyway. So that's what would obviously be looked into is if it is removed now, and if it is right, why wasn't it done sooner? Um, at this point, uh, though, it, was it appropriate for uh, the protesters to effectively pull it down without any authorization uh, in the way now in which they did? That's difficult. Now, should they have pulled it down just like that? I understand the concerns for doing so. Now, what we need to obviously try and gather is if this happens once, Will it happen again? And will it happen again? And will it happen again? Mm-hmm. In these unprecedented times, with lockdown occurring as well, a lot of people's anger may be obviously manifested during that as well. Mm. If we didn't have lockdown, it's very hypothetical. Imagine if we did not have this lockdown and people were not self-isolating for many, many weeks, many, many months, and we had this issue that is going on right now. Would that battery have been pulled down? So it's, it's an if effect, case, an extension of being a bit stir-crazy, as it were. Some, some of it may. I, I, I don't think that we can completely rule that out. Mm-hmm. We have to look at all the, all the issues that are going on right now. And if lockdown wasn't here, would the uproar be as much? I think there will definitely be uproar of what is, what is going on with everything around the world right now, especially Black Lives Matter, things of these issues. But would people be going out and putting statues down? That uh, uh, it's it's an issue. It's, it's more. I would say the more the more motivated to do it now, because they have some racial during lockdown. Was it a right thing to do? If 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 if, if the statue was endorsing slavery or things of that nature, then given the movement that is now, I am all for the movement for equality. So maybe in that case, yes, it may, it may have been right to take that down. But it still needs to follow a system through council mm-hmm. and through leaders of how that can actually be done and how that can be taken into place. But just touching on that as well, 
this has all also come about due to the age that we live in right now. We are on an information age. So if something like this had happened, say, 50, 60 years ago, we are not always on our phones. Either. We would get our news from a newspaper, and that newspaper would always be written by a few select members of the public. That is how the information would be getting through to people. However, now, for example, I'm on a podcast right now. I may have not had my voice heard 50, 60 years ago. Another person may not have their voice heard 50, 60 years ago. But with the advance of technology, social media apps, information can get out there straight away. Whether it is right, whether it is wrong, it still gets out there. And that's an actually interesting debate to have about the unfiltered yep. uh, information that is exactly. coming to people, whether or not uh, it meets editorial standards uh, and uh, so on and so forth. But that is a, an interesting discussion for another time. Uh, and as this Definitely. is the Leaders' Council podcast, uh, we should move on to leadership before we have to go. Um, sure. I always like to start the conversation on leadership off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? The leader for me, I would say, is create. I would say creating an environment for staff or colleagues where they would feel safe and secure, and we all move together in one movement. Not when it comes to leaders, I, I usually see two types, two two types of leaders. Some that are, for example, it, it's all the two and four struggle that that I see in my mind going on as a leader. Um, one is I either have to push my team up or I have to be leading out in the front and then pulling my team up. It is always one or the other, mother pushing or, or mother pulling. And it's always the struggle that I find is getting everyone on the same page and the same level. Once we're on the same level, then we can obviously move forward together. But leadership, in essence, I would say making a safe environment for everyone and everyone knows the objective at hand, and is moving in a single direction together. How would you say you came to your leadership style? Did you have a role model who shaped you in this way? To be fair, um, I didn't actually at all. Um, my, my story, I guess, was a little bit unorthodox. Um, when I, I actually graduated um, abroad, so dentistry itself, I graduated probably about five, six um, years ago. I had a degree in London in biomedical science, um, at King's College, but then I actually did my dentistry um, out in Prague. So when I came back to UK, I actually found it very difficult to find a job in dentistry. Um, no one would give me a job. Um, no one would even look at my CV. Um, they would look for someone more experienced, or they would look for someone, for example, graduate within the UK, even though I am a UK citizen. I did my dentistry abroad. Mm-hmm. Given that, at least we had to go to to find a practice to give me um, a job. Finally, to find one where I eventually worked for free just to get my foot in the door. So by working for free as a receptionist, then as a nurse, and then eventually as a hygienist and finally a dentist, it was that same clinic where I actually worked for free. That is the actual clinic that I took over and a bought out. And now we've expanded, doubled the size, and we've really innovated, innovated into more digital dentistry. So my leadership style, it's more, I would say, I've seen every role of the company and a more truer understanding of what each job role is and how every single team member, from receptionist to nurse to hygienist to dentist, every single person has a vital, vital role 
in the whole chain to make the whole system work. If there was one issue in one system, whether it be reception or nurse or dentist, that is a reflection on everyone. So that's kind of how where I've got my leadership um, skills from, you would say. A lot of it is trial and error, fall and down, you get back up. But it's just about being positive and always, always putting putting the team first. That is what I would say, uh, where, where I've got it from. Well, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store at Broadway Dental Boutique? The next 12 months, we are hoping that obviously we will get back to normal running schedules post-lockdown. However, I see even more investments in industry technologies, such as digital entry, which you already have, digital scanners, and definitely the virtual consultations or tele-dentistry as a first of contact with the dentist, I think that is where it really, really will take off. There's demand out there, clients are wanting it, patients are wanting it. With what's been going on in lockdown, people are very used to Zoom video calls, Zoom conference calls. So we're getting a lot, a lot of demand for virtual consultations. Um, I'm doing a few a day, and I just see that increasing further and further. And then eventually, all of our dentists will be implementing this workflow for their own patients as well. So patients have greater, greater access to the dentist and they can pretty much see them seven days a week within reason in timings at a much earlier date than they would do if it was to be a face-to-face appointment in clinic. Well, I'd like to thank you again for coming on the program. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and we have to have you back on when things get back to a more normal uh, situation. Um, Amo, thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Amo Sohal co-founder and principal dentist at Broadway Dental Boutique. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, m- my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescott who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was waiting patiently in the wings Mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... 
Warnie got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and o- obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray 
He looked like he'd aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a on. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? 
Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think they're they're all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda – was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda, and you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soul in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that twenty nineteen World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um and I knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, 
and we had to move it. In fact, we didn't have to move it at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift our both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, and you in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is 
in some ways more pressing is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. potentially a, 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.